Welcome to Un Uninformed. I'm Sean Seavey. And this is Kendall Monet. Each week we bring you stories that keep you up to speed and connected to the world around you. We give you news that matters so you don't feel so dumb around your smart friends. So nothing really happened in news last week, so me and Kendall are just going to talk about awkward dating stories. <laughs> okay, just kidding. Uh, uh, Donald J. Trump is the President of the United States, and we're going to talk about it. All about it. Um, but first, we're going to do some highlights. We've had a lot of fun on the show with our political commentary. We think we're pretty funny. So here are some of the highlights from past episodes. And let me just note that Un Uninformed, our first episode was with the Hillary and Trump debate. And that's where we really you know, started things off. So this is nostalgic. We've been through Trump all the way. Even though no one thought he would make it, we covered him from the beginning. Yeah, we were on this. So, so all of this, uh, so this little highlight reel is a little nostalgic for me. Crooked Hillary's bad judgment forced her to announce that she would go to Charlotte on Sunday to grandstand. Dem polls said no way. Dumb. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. Oh, okay, please um, rate this for uh, rate this podcast uh, based off based of, off of my Trump impersonation. No, no, actually, well, I thought it was pretty dang good. <laughs> Mr. Trump, what is your plan in reducing crime, improving the economy, increasing wealth, reducing poverty, improving diplomatic relations, improving education, and funding social initiatives? I'm building a wall, and Mexico will pay for it. Hashtag MAGA. So, uh, J- Jimmy Fallon was uh, Im- doing an impersonation of Trump, mm-hmm. and he was saying, let's also hear from my great running mate, uh, what's-his-face. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was interesting because, it, uh, who is this guy? But I think... Um, both the candidates, one is more vulnerable and another one to me sounds crazy, so it's up to you I guys wonder which to, one you're talking about. to choose. I really don't and I don't want to mention names, but um, <laughs> you know these people very well and so it's your choice to make. We made our choice in Uganda and uh, things went the way they did, so we wish you the best as you vote. So Kendall, Halloween is in exactly two weeks and there's one costume that maybe you shouldn't buy. The Trump face? <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's politically charged, but uh, the clown costume. Oh, no. <laughs> Many people described that second debate last Sunday as awkward or cringeworthy. Stephen Colbert said, like with all sequels, it left you wondering, why do they keep making these? <laughs> but we were very concerned about Donald Trump, um, kind of early on, his potential to become the, the nominee. I said that was a fear of mine, and it became a nightmare when he actually got the nomination. We had a long conversation about our vision and where we see the country going, what issues we think are important and our values, what's important to us. And then he said he was going to ask me, and, and I, I was not expecting him to ask me to consider being his running mate, but that is what he asked. And I, I was shocked at first, but then I you know, pretty quickly realized that I absolutely had to do it, that he had had the courage to stand up when no one else would, and that that somebody had to stand up. And if I could, could join in the effort in that way and offer the American people a positive option, some option they could go to the polls and vote for and be proud of, then it was worth it. 
so that's how I came to join the ticket and it's it's been a, a wild ride and a really incredible and inspiring one all along. Tell me about your your thing. Uh, you're all about Muslims for Trump. Muslims against, against Trump. Trump. <laughs> Sorry. Oh <my> God. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so one thing that I would like them to know is that Donald Trump is now the president, and all Americans should join him and pray for him and support him. We know that if Americans are strong. And if their economy is strong, and there is peace, and there is joy, and the people are happy, then the entire world will feel the same. And we're going to associate each member of the cabinet with a familiar Star Wars character. Let's start with our very own President-elect Donald J. Trump. So, if we're going to connect him with a Star Wars character, like, I know liberals will definitely say that he is the emperor and there's a lot of like there's a lot of arguments for that i mean he used to be one of us i mean this is liberals talking not me he used to be you know he used to be a democrat he's forsaken us and that's exactly what senator palpatine did he was with the good good guys and then he totally went you know went the other way but really the whole time he was you know pulling a sleight of hand and really you know this was his whole thing to get rid of the Force for Good, the the Jedi, and all of those things. And another argument for him being the Emperor is, like, the Empire is all one race. I'm not going to disagree that Donald Trump is self-centered. He doesn't take crap. He's definitely an outsider. He is Han Solo. <laughs> I'm interested to hear Darren's take on that. Oh, okay, go for it, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you... You guys didn't tell me ahead of time all these characters we're signing, but uh, <laughs> let's see. I mean, Han Solo, uh, you know what? You, you, you uh, kind of hit a nail on the head there. He yes. Used to, he used to be part of the Empire. He, well, oh, he was a recruit in the I, Empire. So. Whoa, hold on. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he at one time was an Imperial pilot, um, oh. but, but defected from the Empire and uh, took Chewbacca with him, you know? And, um, he, and he drained the swamp. <laughs> I guess so, yeah. But you know he he uh, he doesn't really care what other people think of him, does he? No. And, uh... <laughs> okay, so for our first story, um, Al Franken, Senator Al Franken, was speaking at Rick Perry's Senate confirmation hearing. Don't worry, there's a lot of boring words in that sentence, but what happens next is pretty funny. They had an awkward exchange where Senator Franken was referencing a private meeting that they had had in his office, just kind of saying, we've met, talked about things. I'm going to reference some of that here. But I think Rick Perry just made it super awkward. Let's give it a listen real quick. Governor, uh, Senator, thank you so much for coming into my office. Uh, did you enjoy meeting me? <laughs> I... I hope you were as much fun on that dais as you were on your couch. What? Uh, well. <laughs> and then he gives him the look. <laughs> may, may I rephrase that, sir? Please. 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 Oh, my Lord. Uh, so for our oh audience, my Lord. turned around. He's just. Well, I think we found our Saturday Night Live soundbite. <laughs> oh, man. Let's move on. 
I just want to say that just going back to our Star Wars episode, and I just kind of want to put a plug in for that. It's not out of date because our Star Wars episode we connect we connected you know each member of the cabinet with uh, of Trump's cabinet with the Star Wars character, and we gave Rick Perry the Jar Jar Binks award. And we nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yes, uh, we did. Yeah, and I would highly recommend listening to that. If you want to know the cabinet, we'll let you. And you, if you already understand Star Wars, but you don't understand Trump's cabinet, um, listen to that one. But anyway, Jar Jar Binks. Or if you really understand the cabinet, but you don't understand Star Wars, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's good for both. Yeah. You can go both ways with it. Yeah, that one, even though that was like three weeks ago, it's definitely not out of date. Um, but yeah. Uh, it, what a funny moment. Right. I'm just so glad that they can bring humor into these really really boring senate confirmation hearings um yeah because um that clip right there was from c-span 2 which is funny because c-span 1 is pretty boring but c-span 2 <laughs> like that's like c-span is like, like the, the leftovers yeah c-span 2 finally got a little bit of excitement uh so kendall uh did did he uh did he pass the 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 hearing you know, I'm not sure. A lot of these we're waiting on. We're going to wait a little longer, I guess. Even though the inauguration was last week, we have to wait to see fully what Trump's government looks like because uh, this is slow work. They've got to replace a lot of people. I think presidential appointments are in the numbers of hundreds of people that need to be appointed. And then people that work under them, thousands. There's about 4,000 people that switch in and out with each new president. So... There's a lot of work to be done on on filling, building up the government, basically. And let's just add, add a little reminder of what uh, Rick Perry's position is on Trump's cabinet. He's the over the Department of Energy, and the the reason we gave him the Jar Jar Binks Award is because he was listing all of the um, departments he wanted to get rid of when he was campaigning as president of the United States uh, several years ago, and uh, he forgot the name of that department, and now he's in charge of it. Um, and what's also ironic is he was listing off departments he wanted to get rid of, um, and now he's, you know, he's in that department. But he did openly say, "I now that I understand a little bit more, I regret ever saying that." And uh, that's at least one thing that's come out of him doing these hearings, right? Yeah, and I think um, Trump released some documents on his proposed budget, and that department will be downsized. So. I think he probably got the right man for the job. I mean, whether or not you agree with that is a different issue, but <laughs> putting somebody in charge of a department that they said they would get rid of when you're looking to downsize the department, sounds like they see eye to eye on it. Great. So the Rick Perry moment, that that was uh, before the inauguration. Here's another bit of news that was a few days before the inauguration. Um, it was the announcement of a newly discovered moth. That was named actually after President Trump. Let me explain. Um, no way. Yeah, right. <laughs> Even uh, science isn't safe from politics these days. Uh, yeah, it is not immune. Um, so it's called the Neopalpy Donald Trumpy. <laughs> like, really? This sounds like a kid made it up. But this is legit. <laughs> totally legit. Um, let me back up a little bit. So um, the first part of that, Neopalpy, well, um, that first part has been around. The Neopalpa was um, a species of moth that was discovered at least as far back as 1998. So that's nothing new. But what's different this time, um, what's so different about the Neopalpy Donald Trumpy that was discovered just recently? 
just days before the inauguration, it was published in a science journal. So I'm going to quote from the science journal what they had to say about this unusual name. Quote, and it's funny, this is a science journal. The new species is named in honor of Donald J. Trump to be installed as the 45th president of the United States on January 20th, 2017. The reason for this choice of name is to bring wider public attention to the need to continue protecting fragile habitats in the U.S. that still contain many undescribed species. This specific epithet is selected because of the resemblance of the scales on the frond, or head, of the moth to Donald Trump's hairstyle. We should make this the picture for this episode. Uh, the, the random moth? I mean, it just I saw the picture. It was just like a light yellow little head, and, uh, and it was kind of the Donald Trump light yellow hair color and it kind of had that graininess to it so um great um so we're helping these scientists perpetuate you know the letting people know about this uh rare species of neopalpy donald trumpy great another thing now this is my own extra research i looked deeper into this um and saw that uh this is this species of moth was discovered in um, two of the southernmost counties in California, um, Riverside and Imperial counties. And the interesting thing about hey, that's where I was born. Oh, uh, Riverside. Yeah. Oh, well, just south of that, Imperial is another place, and then also in Baja, California. Um, so here's my take. Um, it's interesting that so Imperial California is right on the California-Mexico border. So the neopulpy Donald Trumpy probably regularly migrates from the US Mexico from US to Mexico and I just don't think Donald Trump Donald Trump's wall will ever change that. <laughs> well maybe you know how a lot of laws don't apply to members of Congress or the president. Oh. Maybe because of the name this this moth will be okay with going across the border. Yeah, as as long as uh, as long as Mexico recognizes dual citizenship. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. So for, I think, the third time on our podcast, I want to revisit the Russia issue because there's been some more news, um, some of it a bit inappropriate, and we don't want to dwell on the details, especially since they're looking to be more and more completely unconfirmed and false. But um, this Russia story is not going away. And I thought we could take a little bit of a dive into recent history to kind of understand what's going on here. So I want to talk about triangular diplomacy. So, Sean, what are your first thoughts when you hear the name Richard Nixon? Richard Nixon, uh, Watergate scandal, um, China, uh, ambassador, to, or you kind of opened things up for China. Um, That's actually what we're going to talk about. Oh. But, yeah, the first thing that most people think of is some crazy Republican who's power hungry and um, Watergate when, when they were caught spying on the DNC. And as things go in Washington, just on, on a side note, it's not usually the scandal that is the issue. It's the cover-up of the scandal. But anyway, before those bad years, he had some really good years. He has a good foreign policy background. He was an anti-communist hawk, really aggressive. And um, that will come in into the story later. So triangular diplomacy involves three actors, as you might guess. In this case, it was the U.S., China, and Russia, or as it was known back then, the USSR. So in diplomacy, the name of the game is leverage and not, I repeat, not going to war. 
So all of these actions are based on the assumption that we want to scale things down here, not scale things up. So little pieces are moved on this chessboard to leverage other players into doing things. So what happened is Nixon cozied up to China, like you said, and um, it involved recognizing China as a legitimate country and power and basically not talking about the ugly stepchild that was Taiwan. And that set up the precedent for the one China policy. It's still a bit of a tricky subject, but that set the precedent for the U.S. just not talking about it, even not talking to Taiwan directly. So basically giving deference to China, to mainland China on that issue. And there's a bunch of other history in there. There's a, there's a lot of other issues. But Nixon was cozying up to China in order to make Russia feel insecure, to leverage Russia into doing something. China and Russia were communist countries, were rivals for various historic reasons. And these go back many, many hundreds and thousands of years. So this was to put pressure on Russia to come to the table to talk about limiting the amount of nukes they were producing. They were afraid that Nixon would basically pave the way for China to outcompete Russia, which actually is kind of what happened. So Nixon was perfect for this job because he had this anti-communist past. So nobody would really doubt his intentions in dealing with the two largest communist powers in the world. Where this enters our time period here in 26, sorry, where <laughs> this comes into relevance in 2017, Trump is basically playing the same game with the same actors, but now he's cozying up to Russia and threatening the one China policy as leverage in trade talks with China. Now, this is the first time, um, as a, I, I'm not as much in the, this is the first time I've heard about this. Um, this is, um, I haven't heard any of the people uh, on all the news outlets that I listen to talk about how this may be very strategic for China. Right. And I think it's just people not remembering their recent history, really. I think I think it's just a lack of education because everyone's scratching their heads. Are you saying There's, Trump saying... isn't as stupid as some uh, diplomacy people think he is? Well, we'll get to that. Okay. I do have an opinion on this. Sure. But yeah, I have been really surprised at, at all the reporters who say, wow, it's so weird that Trump is being so friendly to Putin. He hasn't said anything bad about them. Well, there's a reason for that. People just need to remember their history. And this isn't even, this isn't even more than 50 years ago. As a reminder, it's estimated that up to 1 million U.S. jobs have been lost due to Chinese manufacturing. So this happened late in the 90s, early in the 2000s. Everyone in America knows that everything is made in China. And that has had a real effect on our economy. And this number, the 1 million jobs lost, it's a very rough estimate that just stuck out to me because I follow a lot of foreign policy organizations. And most of these are obviously pro-globalization. They're pro-global business. And I am too. I love traveling. I love that I work for a company that has a product that is manufactured outside the U.S. to save on costs, but we sell it here, and it's great for a lot of people involved, but there are also losers in that system too. So yeah. without getting too much into that, basically that's what Trump is doing. That's one theory as to why he hasn't really said much bad about Putin and why he has been kind of threatening toward China. It's basically triangular diplomacy, but in reverse of what Nixon was doing. My take is that it might work, it might not. I think the world has changed since the 1970s. How so? And the balance of, well, in a few ways. 
I think the balance of powers has shifted. I'm not going to say Russia is not a serious threat, but I think in the 1970s, you did have three gigantic powers, China on the rise, the U.S., and Russia, really both really strong powers. And now we have Russia in decline from all reports that I've heard, China on the rise still, and the U.S. still about about where we've been on the world stage. So uh, the dynamics are different. The dynamics are definitely different. There's terrorism now that we didn't used to worry about. But um, maybe maybe this plan will work. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Thanks for the enlightening me. Um, I actually had no idea that there was any sense in um, cozying up to Russia except, you know, having a Russian wife and uh, and a Russian <laughs> named daughter, right? Isn't Ivanka? Uh, I think so, maybe. I hope so. <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> Sounds like Das Vidanya, which is Russian. <laughs> das Ivanka. Das Ivanka, right? Now let's talk about the inauguration. Now I had the, the treat of watching it on TV like most Americans. Um, but uh, right now we have the opportunity to talk to Susie Lafaelli, who had the great opportunity of actually going there. And so we kind of get her perspective on the ground of uh, how what it was like being, being there in Washington, D.C. So this weekend was a historical moment. It was the inauguration <laughs> of President Donald Trump. And here we have... Susie Lafaelli, who was there for some of the uh, some of the events this weekend, including the inauguration and some of the other events. Uh, Susie, welcome to yes. Un- Uninformed. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, so tell us, uh, tell us about the inauguration. How was it? Um, it was interesting to say the least. Um, I have to tell you, <laughs> I went with a friend of mine who lives in Arlington, um, who isn't a Trump supporter. Yeah. So. So that in itself was really interesting um, to kind of hear her comments in regards to everything that was happening. And I will say I I don't necessarily support Trump or his policies or lack thereof, but I thought it was a really great opportunity to go go to the inauguration. So I I took advantage of it. Um, But the inauguration, the swearing in itself um, was utterly fascinating. It's so different being there in person than what you see on the TV. Really? Tell um, us about it. So we were kind of, we actually were right, kind of right next to the reflection pool, um, right, oh, right before the Union Square. If you have a map of the National Mall, it, we weren't actually too far back. So so um, were you, you were actually looking at everything with your own eyes rather than a jumbotron? Um. I could see the, I couldn't make out any faces. I wasn't that close, you know, because they have all their dignitaries and the senators and congressmen and whatnot closer up. Um, So everything I did see came actually from the first Jumbotron. (laughs) I say the first because there were many, so I was that close. But um, at least you were looking at the first one. (laughs) Yeah. Right, right. (laughs) You know, you could make out, I could make out the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in their white that, you know, but I couldn't make out any faces or anything um, on the podium there. Um, but I was there. We got there uh, maybe about 45 minutes before the actual start of it. Um, and what you don't hear on TV is what's the fascinating part. Um, we were we were standing next to a an African-American family of four. And then also right behind me was an African-American woman 
Um, and then you hear all of the, the chants and the phrases and the, the boos and the shouts from the crowd that you might not necessarily hear on TV. Yeah. Um, for instance, when uh, President Trump was doing his inauguration speech, the woman behind me, the African-American woman behind me, was shouting amen and she was praising Jesus. <laughs> and yeah. she, I, I swear she had his speech she must have had a copy of it beforehand. She knew she all the breaks, all... like, amen. <laughs> she did, and she knew exactly what he was going to say next. I don't know if it was um, a lot of speech, like the speeches he had said during the campaign, so she was familiar with it or not, but she knew that he was going to talk about um, transportation, and he knew, obviously, the overall theme of making America great again. Yeah. But mm -hmm. she knew that he was going to talk about education and she knew that he was going to talk about, you know, putting everything back into the hands of the American public. She just she almost knew his speech verbatim. Wow. <laughs> um, well, that was what that, that was something I thought of during the speeches. A lot of this is things that we've heard before, you know. Right. And so none of it was was new. Um, anything in his speech. One thing that I did find really interesting that I that I really didn't agree with was when he talked about the carnage in, in America. The carnage. Yeah. yeah. And he used that word carnage and I don't necessarily agree with it. I believe America is already great. Um, but I do believe that, that we do need to make improvements and changes. Uh, I don't think that there is a lot. And, and I don't know if that's just small town USA in Southern Utah being naive. Um, but I have traveled quite extensively, and I, I don't think that we have the, quite the carnage that a lot of other countries have. Um, so that part of the speech was really off-putting to me. Yeah. So you were in a pretty pro-Trump area. I wonder, was it easy to get in? I saw some videos of protesters blocking the entrances to the inauguration. What was the protester status at the inauguration you itself? Yeah, so um, because we had reserved tickets, um, I think the protesters were more around that area. For instance, we had tickets in the reserve area, um, and they protesters had actually blocked the entrance. They had kind of formed a human chain, um, protesting people that were going inside the not red gate area. Not wow. um, No, yeah. So there were actually quite a bit of um, public safety officers that had kind of um, made another little barricade and, um, for paint time that morning as we were going into the inauguration. I didn't feel any threats. I didn't feel threats to, to my safety as I was walking in. Um, it was just people expressing their voice and their opinion on the election and the outcome. Um, and that's our right as, as Americans to do so. I think if there was somebody else making the same promises that Trump did, that they would have won the election. I don't necessarily believe it was because of Trump huh, per se. If that does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, uh, the the promises were important, that, more important than the person. You think? Yes. Fantastic. So, any other thoughts on like the whole event, the this American moment? Um, you know, I, again, I, I went because I, I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to participate in something historic. Um, I wanted to be able to to see all the pageantry and the tradition um, that goes along with with an inauguration ceremony and that 
a peaceful uh, transfer of power or so to speak peaceful. Um, So I thought it was, it was a a great time. It was a great time to be in Washington, DC. There's a lot of feeling I thought of, of hope and renewed energy. Fantastic. Well, uh, thanks for giving us the on the floor side of how things were down there. Uh, we we really yeah, appreciate yeah your uh, your thoughts. Thanks so much, Susie. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, one of Trump's first actions on Friday was to sign the waiver that we've heard about for James Mattis, General James Mattis, to become the Secretary of Defense. So. That's in place, and he's good to go. We have a new sec def. Even, yeah, even though General he James recently, Mad Dog Mattis. Oh yeah, and the exception was he recently served in the military, so we had to have a waiver. So that wasn't too hard, now was it? Right. Yeah, and Obamacare right. should be a breeze because he's <laughs> going to repeal and replace it in one swoop. Yeah, that one. Yeah, that one might be a little more tricky. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds easy. Not. <laughs> anyway, uh, best of luck with the. You know, I want good health care, so I hope they figure this out. Yeah. Another historical thing that happened this weekend was probably one of the biggest uh, protest rally gatherings that we've seen in a very long time. Um, it was called the Women's March um, in Washington, D.C., um, but it took place in a lot of other cities. Right now, we have the opportunity to talk to Meredith Duncan and Sarah Muffley, and both of them were at the D.C. P- protest, and we kind of get a little look into how they felt about it. And it was quite a peaceful protest. Um, The turnout was fantastic. Um, Let's hear what they had to say. So joining me is Meredith Duncan and Sarah Muffley. Both of these women participated in the Women's March on Washington. And here they are to tell us a little bit about it. Um, Thanks for joining us, Meredith and Sarah. Thanks for having us, Sean. Thanks for having us. So if I'm not mistaken, you just now... You've, you've returned back from the protests, right? Yes. Yep. Got, got to sit down. We've been standing for a lot of hours. <laughs> yeah. What, how was the weather? <laughs> really not that bad. It was kind of overcast and a little damp, like foggy, but not too cold, which was nice. Yeah. Well, and I just have to tell you, I was trying to uh, hit up the one here in, in Utah. I went to Park City, Utah. And I couldn't even make it there because it was so snowy. So these were very dedicated oh, wow. women oh, walking no. through deep snow. <laughs> yeah, so, we luckily had a, had it a little bit easier on that yeah. front. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's good. And I and I heard this was packed. It exceeded expectations. Is that correct? They were expecting about two hundred thousand people. As far as we know. Um, there's no like official count of how many people were there, and I mean, tell what 200,000 people <laughs> looks like, but there were a lot of people there. Yeah, I saw one, um, Cecile Richards, who's the head of Planned Parenthood. Okay. Instagram, she said like over 500,000 people. So half a million know. women are speaking out. That, yeah. that's... Well, and men too. There were, I mean, there were a lot men, of men. women, and children. People cool. of all genders were there. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me, uh, so what brought you two to this event? What what was on your mind? What was did you have a, a sign? What did it say? Give me a little idea on that. Um, well, I would say a lot of things brought us to the march, um, but kind of the 
the planning for this march or started right after the election. So very quickly, both Sarah and I do. You know, we were very saddened to have Trump elected and you, you know, we voted, <laughs> we used our voice, but um, we were feeling like it wasn't heard, like we need to do, uh, we want to known that um, this isn't over, that we're still here and we still have very strongly held convictions and we disagree with the message that Trump is sending to America and to the world um, the disrespect that he shows towards women, to all kinds of um, disenfranchised people, and that we're not going to take it. And I think showing up to a big event like this, um, numbers matter and uh, representation matters and just showing up and making it known that there are thousands of people who are not satisfied with the status quo. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I was thinking about a lot during the march is that uh, each person who is marching represents many more other people who are not able to be there mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason. Not everyone can, you know, take a bus or a plane to DC. So if the people, I mean, multiply that many times over to represent the number of people who were there in spirit. Um, so anyways, like Sarah said, numbers matter. And it's really important with um, a lot of people believe that kind of energy leads towards um, continued action. Yeah, everyone. yeah. Just um, jumping off of that, for me, from um, I mean, I've never been to a major um, political rally like this. Um, but it was to uh, walk the walk, literally. In addition to um, you know speaking my mind, which you know I do all the time. But mm -hmm. at a certain point, you have to translate your words into action. So I'm hoping this is a first step. Agreed. Cool. Um, so now I, I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, did, did you both listen to the inauguration speech and the, that whole thing? Yeah. I, I only saw clips of it, but Sarah saw yeah, the whole thing. I watched it. Um, so, I mean, obviously in speeches like this, you want to, you know, broaden your, you want to talk to everyone and, and uh, you know, it's not so much Democrat and Republican anymore. Um, something that I thought was interesting, and maybe tell me what you think about this um, and if he'll keep this promise. Um, Trump said, let's see, I'll, I'll read it here. It says, uh, um, today we're not merely transferring power from one administration to another um, or one party to another, but this moment is from, let's see, um, but this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. Um, and so he had a lot of things like, this is the people's that the people will now have control. Um, now, what, what what do you think about that? As far as like he did mention, you know, people's voices being heard. Um, I mean, what do you think? Honestly, he might... I think that's empty rhetoric. I think all politicians say some version of that at every speech they give. <laughs> and I think a big part of Trump's persona is that he. He campaigned on the idea that he's speaking for um, a, a segment of our population that has not been heard. So when he's doing that, he's trying to reinforce this idea that he represents the underdog. And finally, the underdog is going to be heard and he's going to be the mouthpiece. And that's just, I mean, it's false. It's false. And 
there he does not speak for a large portion of the population and the popular vote didn't even go to him in the end so right. he but he needs to continue to play with that idea because he wants to seem as if he is um you know the person that the majority of the country he needs chose. to he needs to convince people that uh he's not the elite billionaire that he is yeah um and uh and are you kind of saying like now, a lot of people uh, make a big emphasis on, like, reverse racism is the problem. And now, you know, male white people don't have – is he saying now they've had a small voice and this is their chance? Is that kind of how you see it? I think that's how he sees it. Yeah. I think that um, that argument that uh, it's a, a reaction of angry white men, I think there's some merit to that. Mm -hmm. Um I don't think their reaction if I mean, if, if that is what it is, and if this is the group that overwhelmingly voted Trump into office, um, then I mean, I, I disagree with that response, like to elect a fascist, because, you know, you feel like you um, haven't been given your uh, fair share when in reality, if you look at the course of history, you know, white men have benefited from the greatest affirmative action program of all time. And now that other people who are not white men are getting opportunities to advance opportunities um, to, to gain power. Um, you know, when, you know, people like to say that when you're used to uh, privilege, equality feels like oppression. So I, I understand that maybe they are struggling with that, but I don't think it's, it's correct. If you look at the course of history. But it's also not that, you know, uh, white men are not the only people who voted for Trump. 52% yeah. of white women voted for Trump. So yeah. it's not um, solely, that's not, not that's the only group that he's speaking to. Yeah, I think the best sign I saw today just said, sorry about white people. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that's great. And now, now, did you actually have a sign? No. <laughs> <laughs> No, we, 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 since we were coming from New York, we hadn't made signs and it was actually raining in New York on Friday. Yeah. So I think our signs would have been destroyed if we did bring them. But, um, <laughs> we were marching with a girl who had an Audrey Lord sign. Uh, it, that, that's kind of a, a similar thing to like nasty woman right. was a big hashtag. Like, um, she's a nasty woman and people mm -hmm. turn something negative into like something like, well, let's just own this. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I was wearing my nasty woman T-shirt today. Oh, okay. well, good for you guys. Um, so uh, now, um, so what? The best case scenario. What do you hope to come out of this? It's home. It's almost hard to imagine a best case scenario because it feels like there's so much work to be done. But I think that um, hopefully, what this march does is bring a lot of people together. I mean, it's very inspiring to see marches happening all over the country all over the world right so mentioned numbers are so important we you know mm -hmm. in opposing this administration and that um it, the more work that we do to stand up for climate change stand up for immigrant rights stand mm -hmm. up for women's rights you know that you're not there are people who um, are taking action and want to participate so i hope that this leads towards more action yeah and i hope some of those people are local and national legislators who will 
um, closely read the um, the policy platform set out by the Women's March, and I strongly encourage you to read that on the website, womensmarch.org, um, or no, womensmarch.com, one of the two, you'll find it. <laughs> um, but they really laid out a really progressive uh, policy agenda, and I hope that um, we'll, we'll propose and, and pass laws uh, to support it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, it and it seemed like... Um... Now, I, I know that one person can make everybody look bad, but did it generally seem like a peaceful protest? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, like, really polite. Like, if, you know, people needed to get through, everyone made way. Um, you know, there were a couple times when um, police or ambulance vehicles needed to get through, and, like, it was like Moses parting the Red <laughs> Sea. Um, everyone moving to the sides. Um, very friendly. Very, and there was, uh, I read recently that there were police um, guarding the barricades in front of the White House where a lot of protesters were, and the protesters were thanking the police for being police and for protecting the city <laughs> and being security for the day. So there was very, there was no antagonism um, happening during the march. And I don't think that's very effective anyway, all of the angry protester type of things. So, um, and yeah, what what a thing to be part of something like this. Any anything else you want to say about the moment? Uh I'm just glad we came. I think this is going to be an important event um going down in history marking the the first day of the Trump administration. Um one of the chants that um was being called out was um away welcome to your first day. Yeah. <laughs> um and I hope that this is the uh, beginning of the of the resistance. Mm-hmm. And then one other, I think it was really inspiring to see the diversity of participants in the march. Um, there were way more men there than I sort of expected. I lots of the media about the march leading up were saying, "Are um, men welcome? Can can we come? I don't know what <laughs> to do." Or or you know, two hundred women expected to march on, or two hundred thousand women expected to march on Washington. And it was, there were tons, a lot of families, people of all genders and people of all backgrounds too. Mm-hmm. So um, I think there have been, people have been worried in the past that, you know, feminism is a white woman's movement and it's not inclusive. And I think what we saw today was like an amazing inclusivity. Yeah. And I think the organizers of the march and how the march evolved really affected that because it was started very organically by Two women in separate places making really? similar Facebook posts mm-hmm. about the um, in the aftermath of the election, saying let's march on Washington, and then they got huge responses. They joined forces. Um, these were still two white women, and then people rightfully um, took notice and said, "Hey, this is not the most um, this is not the most inclusive way to go about this. This is mm-hmm. not what feminism is about." Mm-hmm. Um, and they they handed over the reins to. Um, you know, really established um, accessible organizers, yeah. Linda Sarsour, um, think Tamika Mallory, mm-hmm. and other women of color. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's great to see that women can get things done. Um, I'm an engineer. Oh, we already know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't need to say the obvious. I mean, I was in, I, this kind of reminds me of a club I had um, in engineering school that um, was the student women in engineering. Um, and they were the ones that were like the most proactive that uh, planned all these activities. I wasn't even part of the club, even though same same like this, you know, the men could come to this. 
uh, club. But I wasn't even part of the club, but I would, like, go to all their workshops. They were, like, the most organized. They had something going on every week. And they really, you know, showed what women can really do. Mm-hmm. If only we'd given Hillary a chance to show that <laughs> to the country. Oh, yep. uh, well, we could look back, can't we? <laughs> um, yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, we did get to see her that maybe the last time that we'll see her in a very long time on the at the inauguration. Um, best of luck to her. Um, yeah. Uh, well, well, thanks so much for um, enlightening me on uh, kind of how that went down. Um, way to be part of this movement, Meredith Duncan and Sarah Muffley. Thanks for your time. <laughs> Thank you for having Thank us. You so much, Sean. Well, it's good to hear that it's not not all of the protests were what some people are seeing on Facebook and Twitter about the anarchist groups throwing trash cans and burning things and breaking glass. Yeah, it very much was not that way. Um, it was, it was quite peaceful as they were, they were saying, like they were saying how the protesters were thanking the cops for doing their, doing a good job. Um, people were cutting into the protests because, uh, law enforcement had to cut through people were really cool with that. This was moms and children. Um, because the goal was solidarity and they wanted to make it really clear. They wanted to keep this, uh, peaceful. Uh, so Kendall, let me tell you how the inauguration was for me. Um, I was just watching it at home just by myself, uh, on TV. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I wasn't looking forward to it just to hear Trump's speech or anything like that. Um, I just wanted to be part of an, an American, uh, tradition and um, you can see that, for me, my takeaway was that this was an American event, not so much a Trump event. Um, he was the guest rather than the host um, because, you know, he gave his speech. But there's so much tradition there. There was the color guard. There was a military band. Let me just be a little vulnerable for a moment. Um, so for me, like, I'm not the crying type. But for but just recently in my life, I, I actually do get a little emotional, um, you know, when I'm hear, hearing the national anthem or I'm going to a veterans thing where veterans will stand up when their branch of the military's song is played. Like things like that somehow strike a chord with me. Um, and it's really silly because uh, I just get, you know, just a little teary. Um, and, and for me, it was that way, too. Um and, uh, you know, people think I'm so pragmatic, but, um, when it comes to patriotic things, I just have, uh, it just strikes me differently. And so let me just tell you, uh, this inauguration was no different and it wasn't anything to do with, um, the, the specific person on the podium, Donald Trump. Um, in fact, it was more of just hearing the military band, um, seeing them post the colors. Um, it, it was American pride. And so, like I said, this was not a Donald Trump moment. This was an American moment. And for me, it just kind of reminded me of how fantastic this is that, uh, you know, since George Washington to the next president to the next president, we were able to transfer power. And um, they say peaceful transfer of power. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a good ideal. It's not always peaceful. But symbolically, it, this is fantastic that we can um, we could come together and no matter what um, happens as a president, America is America. Well said. 
Thanks so much for listening. If you liked the episode, subscribe to our show on your podcast app so you can catch every episode without looking on Facebook. Um, on an iPhone, that's the purple app called Podcasts. And on Android, there are tons of apps that you can get from the store. So go download a podcast app and start listening today. As always, our music is provided with permission by D.D. Dumbo. And this has been Ununinformed with Kendall Monette. And Sean Seavey. And don't forget to like our page on Facebook. And uh, you can visit our website at ununinformed.com. That's un-uninformed.com. Thanks, guys.